This is Mormon Awakenings. You can email me your questions or comments to mormonawakenings at gmail.com or you can find me on Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Welcome back. We've been getting a good response to the conversation we conducted with Tyler Bruff last week. We're going to have Tyler back soon. He was terrific, so thanks again, Tyler. I also want to reiterate the invitation made at the end of last week's podcast, which was if any of you want to come on, like Tyler did, and share your own Mormon Awakenings experience as a guest, then please do contact me via mormonawakenings at gmail.com or message me at Facebook via Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. And we'll try to figure out a way to do a joint recording so you can share your experience. Well, enough with the preliminaries. On to this week's podcast topic, which revolves around an old air handler. About six, seven years ago, before I had done any work on my house, when it was in its original, most crappy estate, as a 125-year-old, run-down New England fieldstone house, I came home one day through the basement because that's how you got into the house. house is kind of built into this hill, so on one side, the basement is a walkout basement. On the other side, it's a basement basement. Anyways, one day I walked in through the basement door right into a big old wet puddle. It was dry outside, hot in fact. Hadn't rained, and even when it did rain, my house had never had a history of flooding in the basement when it would rain, so this puddle puzzled me, to say the least. So I followed the puddle. It got a little deeper. It wasn't, you know, like up to my ankles. It was maybe a half an inch deep, but I followed the puddle as it got deeper and deeper and deeper, and it led right to this closet, and inside the closet was the air handler, and the air handler was just oozing water out of the sides. Now, the air handler, for those who don't know, it's something that pushes the air around in the house, and that air during the winter gets heated by a furnace, or that air gets cooled by air conditioning and condensers during the summer. So depending on the season, it's either pushing really hot air around or it's pushing really cold air around. This was summer, so it was pushing really cold air around, and it was just oozing water, like, like it was bleeding water out of all the sides. And the water was just not really gushing, but it was slow, you know, dripping down the sides of the air handler, forming this puddle, which now had... By the time that I got into the basement that day, it expanded out. And my first thought was, oh, crap. What now? So I you know, looked at it and turned it on and off, and that, you know, that didn't seem to do anything. So I thought, well, I better call somebody. So I called up the local heating and cooling company and had them come over. And the next day, this guy showed up, and he had a clipboard with a list of things to check. So he started to do that. He went through each item on his list, checking them one at a time. One, two, three, you know, there were 15 things or so. And at, and at the end of this process of checking all the items on the list, he ruled out all sorts of potential problems. But then he said, well, I, I think you're probably going to need a new air handler. I think this one's broken. And I just thought cynically, well, that's a, hmm, that's a highly convenient conclusion for the heating cooling company that sells air handlers to make on my behalf after going through this list. So I asked a few questions like, well, wh 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 where's this water coming from? Is there a pipe feeding the air handler? And has this pipe maybe broken? He said, no, no, there's no pipes feeding the air handler. There's no source of water. I said, well, where's all this water coming from? He said, well, this is water that is condensing 
inside the air handler. Because basements typically are humid. My basement in particular is very humid because I have a fieldstone foundation. So it's, it's humid down there. And humid air, as you know, condenses around cold things. If, you're, if you've ever had a glass of water, cold water with ice in it, on a humid day outside, the, the, the humidity condenses around the cold glass of water. Little drips of water form around the glass. So the guy said that the water is the condensation of this humidity because there's all this cold air being pushed around by the air handler. It's quite cold inside the air handler. So I said, well, that makes sense. Well, what typically happens with all this water that gets condensed inside air handlers during the summer? And he said, well, usually there's a pump that sends it away, but your pump seems to be working fine. So then he surmised that maybe there's a hole in the pan that holds this water that's condensing and that's probably ruined the motor by this time. And anyways, it's time to get a new air handler. Yours is too old, Mr. Homeowner. We can say, sell you a new one, and then your problem will be solved. Because we did all these diagnostic steps, and none of them showed us where the problem was. And usually when that happens, the almost inevitable conclusion is that you just need a new air handler. You know, these things wear out. You know, you've heard these guys make these kind of pitches before. I'm not trying to rail on this, this guy. I mean, he was an employee of the company. He was just doing his job. He was doing what he was told to do. You know, it's not like he had an engineering degree from MIT. He was just, you know, a technician who had been trained by the company to go through these steps. And then at the end of the steps, if the problem wasn't apparent, then he's told to try to talk the customer into buying a new air handler. I mean, that's just what his job was. He was just doing what he was told to do. He was getting paid. So that's what he did. He was almost like a robot, wasn't he? Executing a program. Well, I don't want to buy a new air handler. I'm cheap. When it doesn't grow on trees where I live, I don't know about where you live, but I didn't want to go and buy a new air handler. And the air handler you know, wasn't brand new, but it didn't seem that old. It seemed fairly modern compared to the rest of my house. And I thought, this, this can't be right. Or if it was right, I just wasn't quite convinced yet. And so I sent the guy on his way. Thanks. And then I went and got a light, got the tools, whatever tools I had, and I started hacking away at this thing. And I started taking apart the panels and starting looking at it and tried to figure out for myself if, in fact, there was a hole in the pan and had the motor really been damaged by the overflowing water. I mean, was there any evidence supporting this technician's assertion that I needed to buy a new air handler? So I took off all the panels and I saw where the air flowed into the air handler and I saw the coils that would get cooled down by the air conditioning units on the outside of the house. I saw where the air met the coil, and I saw where the water condensed around these coils, and I saw that the water did, in fact, drip down to this pan below that sort of collected the water, and then this pan poured into this pipe, this little plastic pipe, and this plastic pipe connected to this pump, and the pump sent the water away. Well, the, the pipe wasn't draining the pan. There were no holes in the pan. The pan was fine. It's just the, the, the pan full of water wasn't, going anywhere. The pipe itself seemed to be plugged. And then I looked at the side of the pipe and there was this long brush kind of thing, kind of like a, a big pipe cleaner. It's a couple of feet long. It was flexible. It had a little brush at the end. And I thought, hmm, what, what's this for? So I took that long, flexible, brushy thing and I started jamming it into the pipe and, and the pipe suddenly popped like it was plugged with something. It popped. And then all the water from the pan rushed down this pipe into the pump, the pump engaged, and then it sent it away into the drain at the other side of the basement. It turns out there was a plug in this pipe, and plugs in these pipes from air handlers, plugs are pretty common because 
What happens when water condenses is it kind of concentrates all the gunk in the air. It concentrates it, and then when the water condenses, it becomes kind of this dirty water full of all the concentrated gunk from the air. And then this gunk kind of builds up in the pipes. And this is a common problem, it turns out. So common that the manufacturer of the pipe, who also manufactured the air handler, who also manufactures the pump, they give you this little brush, this long kind of pipe cleaner thingy, and they say, jam this into the pipe, you know, every other year or every six months or something, and that'll keep you plug-free. So this is not a common problem. That's what I'm trying to say. This is a simple, ordinary, routine problem that for some reason was not on the list of things to check that the technician was given by the organizers of the heating and cooling company. On his list, it didn't say, pull out the pipe cleaner and clean out the pipe that connects to the pin. That was not on the list. So the technician, the robot, just doing what he was told, getting paid to do that, he just went through his list and, of course, didn't find the problem and time to buy a new air handler. And I was standing there in the dark in my basement, my feet wet, my fingers kind of sliced by the sharp edges of the panels that I had taken off. And I was, I was a little peeved. I was disappointed. Such a simple, ordinary problem. And the technician couldn't solve it, but of course the technician could have. But he wasn't supposed to solve problems. He was just supposed to go through the list of diagnostics. And if the list of diagnostics didn't reveal a revenue-generating problem, like a broken pan or a broken air handle that needs to be replaced, something that can generate a little revenue for the company, then he wasn't supposed to do that. I know that's a cynical view here, but we all kind of get that vibe, don't we? We get the vibe sometimes that the organizations that have been set up to serve us, the people that we hire to help us, have been hijacked themselves by their, by their institutions that are just seeking to live on beyond their creator's power. This heating and cooling company was set up by a couple guys, presumably, maybe an old family, who knows, but they set it up to serve people, sell air handlers, make a little money in the process, sell some equipment, some maintenance services, but then somewhere along the line, the institution itself, the company, sort of took over, and the company, almost like a third-party independent organism, sought to live, and the way that it did that is by giving the technician a list of diagnostics, a list, a, a list of steps to go through that would not solve anyone's problems unless those problems could generate revenue. Because you got to have revenue to pay the rent, and no one's sending their kids to college unplugging the pipes and telling people to merely use the pipe cleaners that are attached to the pumps that are issued by the original equipment manufacturers. So it's like this thing, this company is alive, like it's an ego completely separate from its creator, the founders of the company. Except unlike with an individual, the company can't go and just meditate and find its ego and start to listen to its ego and start to become the watcher of itself because the company's not made up of one person, it's made up of many people. And once any given individual inside the company starts to mess with this culture, this being that lives above and beyond the founders of the company, above and beyond anyone's intentions, Once a technician, for example, decides, you know what, I'm going to augment this list of diagnostics that I'm supposed to perform. Once he starts to do that, there's all sorts of pushback. Other technicians out with him in the field will say, hey, you're not doing the plan. That's not the way we were told to do it. And the first technician may say, well, you know, look, all the guy had was a plugged drain pipe. I feel badly about pushing 
an entirely new air handler on this guy. The other one will say, that's not right. The other technician that is, he'll say, that's not right. That's not correct. You're going to get us fired. How's that going to help us? Goes home and talks with his wife about it. She'll say, now look, you got to keep your job. The bosses may notice, but they'll say, boy, I've got kids in college. Got other things I got to pay for. And what's the big deal? You know, most of the time it is a broken water pan. And it's not like the power is concentrated so much in any one individual that he can unilaterally make a change. And if he does, well, then he sows seeds of doubts throughout all of his underlings. And maybe they'll quit. Maybe they'll leave. So even a person in a position of power to make changes has a difficult time doing so. Because it becomes this big blob-like organism bending and swaying and bubbling in and out. And it's not as simple as just recognizing the problem. And so we see this pattern in lots of industries. We have lots of companies that nickel and dime us, seem to program in little fees, seem to find problems that somehow they have the solution for, which is going to cost us money instead of fixing, repairing, maintaining, being efficient, all the things that we want as homeowners with leaky air handlers. Now, why am I telling you this long Elaborate story about my basement, a puddle. Well, I received an email this week, which I'd like to share with you. It was sent to me by Zach. Zach wrote me last week in response to the conversation that I had with Tyler Bruff. He said, I love Tyler's approach to his talk on the For Strength of Youth pamphlet, and it made me sad that people felt the need to go running to the state president about it. If you remember, last week, my guest Tyler Bruff told, told a story about a talk that he gave in Sackert meeting about the For Strength of Youth pamphlet, in which he stated that the For Strength of Youth pamphlet is not doctrine. It's merely a good program, a good policy. And people in his ward, some anyways, flipped out and went and told on him to the stake president. Zach continues, as Paul told the Galatians, no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law, Galatians 3.11. Zach continues, it seems like this was the whole message of Jesus. You are too focused on the outward manifestations of the law and are missing the bigger picture. You should be focusing instead on loving God and loving your neighbor. We have elevated some materials in our church, some programs, and even, dare I say, general authorities in a way that borders on idolatry. Zach also states, I also love the discussion of the deficiency wholeness model for the atonement. I would love to hear more about your thoughts on this. This has been a major theological sticking point for me. I agree that when you start having a more expansive view of the things of God, the idea that God requires punishment for sin and Christ electing to take that punishment for us, which leaves us indebted to him, that that line of thinking seems barbaric and medieval. For me, I like the idea that we are continually forgetting the right way to live and keep turning to selfishness, keep turning to selfishness both as individuals and as societies. Jesus came to remind us of the right way to live and to return to a closeness with God. And it was such a threat to the power structures, Rome and the Sanhedrin, that they put him to death. But Jesus overcame their attempts to silence him, and those ideas live on. For me, Zach writes, this has taken the idea of Jesus and the atonement from being a giant guilt trip to a hopeful and exciting message. Zach continues, I've made the mistake of telling a handful of close family and friends about some of these views when the topic has come up and have deeply offended some of them. They see this as rejecting the divinity of Jesus 
and rejecting the very cornerstone of the gospel. I have been surprised by this reaction because in my mind, I feel like I am very enthusiastic about Jesus and my views have made me want to try to live his teachings better. I'm wondering if you've encountered the same things and if you found any ways to be honest and tactful. Different institution, different culture, but like the heating and cooling technician, like the man with the broken air handler, hiring the heating and cooling company, the dynamics between Zach and his family and friends who are part of an institution, the dynamic between Zach, a member of a church, an institution, and the dogma of that institution are pretty similar at a very fundamental level between what's going on when I walk into my basement and find a puddle of water and I have to call some guy to help me fix it. I know that's probably stretching things a little bit too far, too obtuse of a comparison for some of you. I'm sorry about that. But I think at a very basic level, both situations illustrate certain patterns that happen over and over and over and over on this earth between people who are aggregating into groups, into towns, states, cultures, countries, churches, companies, corporations. We all live in this world where nothing kind of works right or kind of works how we want it to work. We're all subjugated to cultures, to milieus that kind of live beyond and above the people who have set up the institutions or the organizations beyond and above what their intentions were. Almost as if these cultures, these milieus, these dogmas, these doctrines, these protocols and procedures have a life of their own, and they do. It's almost like they're all separate energies. Well, that's weird. And it's very tempting when you realize that about life, how incredibly imperfect, inefficient, rigid, inflexible, oppressive. It's very tempting at the moment of awakening to want to withdraw and just say everything stinks. Everybody's got a cynical ulterior motive. Everybody in the world wants to tell me how to think and what to do and I'm being criticized. And It's very easy to devolve into this paranoid state. It just is. But when we do that, I think we're forgetting what life is like without any organization, without any rules or protocols, without any procedure. There's an expression that's popular these days called, it's a first world problem. And that's expressing the sentiment that we're griping about things at the very, very margin of a society that is very, very functional. But at the very, very margin, maybe there's a couple things that we can fine-tune. But we gripe and we're put out and we're critical and we say everything stinks and we make these really illogical general statements about how the world is so cynical out to get us or no one in my family understands me or loves me because I have a different view about Christ or no one in my church will accept me because I wear a blue shirt instead of a white shirt and the church stinks and I hate it or every service company out there is just trying to trick me into buying a new air handler, forgetting all the while that when your air handler breaks, all you have to do is pull your cell phone out and call the guy, and he'll come over. He's not going to be perfect, but in spite of his ulterior motives, pre-programming to sell me a new air handler, the step that he took to come to the house helped me figure out the problem, which I ultimately did. In much faster time, had that company not existed, been around, and so oftentimes it's a matter of perspective. After I fix the air handler in my house, I then spend a little bit of money and a lot of time and a lot of elbow grease fixing up the rest of my house. And I actually bought a bunch of new air handlers. And I hired some guys to come in and take down walls and put up new walls. And this was a messy and dirty process. 
And one day I heard one of the guys say, perfect is the enemy of good, which is true, of course, on so many levels. Because if you're looking for perfection, you don't appreciate what's good. If you're looking for perfection, you're never satisfied with things that are good enough, which enable you to move on. If you're obsessed with perfection, you're never at peace. It's my belief that the world, of course, is quite good. The heating and cooling company is pretty good. Our government's pretty good. Our church is better than good. Of course, it's not perfect. And of course, Dasman, the collective ego, the blob that we feel oppressed by from time to time, those things aren't necessarily good. They can get out of hand. They can get out of control. At the margins, there's a lot of work to do. Changes, improvements. But that doesn't mean there's not a lot of good. It's a matter of perspective, of course. And so do the Zacks of the world, who harbor what some people feel are heretical views about Christ and the atonement, who believe more in the wholeness model than the deficiency model. And by the way, both models are just that, models. They're not the truth in and of themselves. But they're models, metaphors that help us understand incrementally a little bit better what the atonement's all about, what God's about. But for Zach, who harbors perceived heretical views about Christ, about the atonement, and then shares those views with his family, and his family freaks out, or his friends freak out, or his bishop or his stake president freak out, well, I agree that at the margins, there's something wrong here. In spite of all the good in the world, in spite of all the good with our institution, at the margins, there's something a little kooky going on. But marginal kookiness, for lack of a better way of saying it, does not justify taking the proverbial Molotov cocktail, throwing it at the building, and burning it down to the ground. That sort of thinking, in my view, absolves us, unjustifiably, of taking responsibility for our own responses, for our own moods, for our own self-esteem. It absolves us of taking responsibility for our own thoughts, beliefs, spiritual impressions. We don't like to deal with the cognitive dissonance that comes when people from our tribe or our family or our church disagree with us on the margins. We don't like that cognitive dissonance because it undermines our confidence in our own views. We want all the others in our lives to confirm and to stroke us and to tell us that we're right. And by the way, I'm the worst offender of this, of anyone. I'm not trying to pick on Zach. I think Zach is articulating and sharing a very common experience that any member of any group of anything has experienced. And it undermines our confidence because there's no one outside of us giving a check mark, putting a star on our forehead, giving us an A plus on the test. But part of the process of becoming independent, strong, is learning to rely on the light within, the revelation you get, the conclusions that, that you draw in a spiritual sense. And part of maturity is then working with all the people who are at the margins who don't agree for one reason or another, who are lost in their own shadows, who are operating like robots, who've been pre-programmed by Dasman, the culture, the superego, whatever it is. On the one hand, it's very liberating. On the other hand, it's very terrifying when you start to see these patterns. But it forces you to start to look for strength and support from powers beyond the marginal kookiness of the dominant institutions and cultures that affect your life. I think what happens as people do that is they realize that there are basically two forces in the universe. There's fear and there's love. These don't seem like opposites. We think the opposite of fear is courage, and we think the opposite of love is hate. 
Maybe that's true from a semantics point of view, but in fact, I think there are only two forces in the universe. There's love and there's fear, fundamentally. And love brings life and fear destroys it. Love brings understanding and fear masks it. Love comes from God. Fear doesn't. Love waits for marginal kookiness to transmute itself into incremental progress. Fear throws the Molotov cocktail. Now, I don't want to get out of control here. There are times in history, in our personal lives, when we're dealing with more than just marginal kookiness inside a structure, institution, culture that's fundamentally good. The U.S. Civil War comes to mind. Massive destruction. Scorched earth burning and destruction of part of the country that was harboring a fundamentally evil, fear-based structure. Slavery. And there are other situations, of course, where there's a fear-based company, institution, country, a fear-based family system, church, something that's doing more harm than good, something where the kookiness isn't merely marginal. But for most of us, most of life is not that way, and it's too easy, too hyperbolic, too melodramatic, too histrionic to blame others for not stroking us all the time, to blame others for not giving us an A+, on some sort of perceived test that we think they're administering, as if others, the group, your family, your church, has the authority to promote you from first grade to second grade or to write the letter of recommendation that's going to get you into college, as if they have that sort of power. It's a cop-out to moan and blame others for not making you feel good about the way you think, about the way you believe, about the way you conduct your life. Because if you do that, you avoid the ultimate question that you're supposed to ask, the ultimate question you're supposed to answer on your own, which is, what does this all mean? Am I doing it right? Is there a power out there beyond me that can help me? Sadly, and ultimately, those are questions that you can answer. And you alone, you can listen to others, but you got to remember There are only two forces driving you and everyone else, love and fear. Start finding the love. Well, I've gone on way too long. I hope you found something interesting here today. Please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com or contact me at Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanik. If you're interested in coming on the podcast and sharing your Mormon Awakening story, please contact me. We'll try to get you on. Until next time.